This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm Todd Pruitt, one of your regular hosts, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Carl Truman. I happen to be a pastor. Carl Truman happens to be a professor, and together it just works. There's something magic in this alchemy, isn't there, Carl? Oh, yes. The, that free song I get every time I click on the Zoom link and see your face beaming out at me, Scott, is like nothing else. Yeah, this is... I, uh, Electric, yeah, electric. Exactly. I think it's it's Abbott and Costello. Maybe yeah. actually it's it's Paul Newman and Robert Redford. That's, that's a closer analogy, like that. I think, to this. Exactly, exactly. Well, now, Carl, you've done something recently that's gotten you a mixture of of praise as well as criticism. Now you're kind of used to living in that space, though, right? Yeah, it's not been an unusual experience for me. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I live in that liminal no man's land. Where, <laughs> you know, I don't know who's going to love me and who's going to hate me on any given day of the week. You know, that the constituency is, is very fluid, I think. I'm very the, sure of that. Yeah. Well, Carl, you, you wrote a piece, uh, what I'm referring to is the piece that you wrote for First Things um, on critical race theory, specifically uh, the relationship between critical race theory and evangelicalism is critical race theory seeping into evangelicalism. I think that's very clear that it is, and we can get into that in just a moment. Um, and, and you also write about some of the kind of the axiomatic nature of critical race theory, which, which really gives it a lot of uh, dogmatic qualities, a lot of religious qualities that we might conclude. And some have been really appreciative of the piece. I think it's excellent. Others, some of the usual cast of characters, have criticized it. So quickly for, for our hearers, because I think that some of these categories have rushed upon us over the last just couple of years. And I think people are talking about some of these things without a very good idea of, of what some of the terms actually mean. So how, how would you, first of all, just kind of define critical race theory in a way that our listeners who, who this, if this is new to them, they could kind of get a grasp on? Well, critical race theory is a way of approaching the the issue of, we might say, power relations in society, specifically through the lens of race. And like a lot of theories, it contains a a, a certain amount of what we might call truth, for example. So that uh, you know, the whole notion that race is a constructed category. Black people and white people are not differentiated in the same way that, say, cats and dogs would be differentiated. There is there is a commonality to us. That means those distinctions we make between race, for example, between classes, et cetera, et cetera, these things are, are constructed. But that doesn't mean they don't come to grip the imaginations. 
shape how we think, drive how we think. And critical race theory, on one level, latches onto that idea. And I think it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a truth that, that race is, is very much a construct and a relatively recent one in many right. ways. You know, my, uh, PhD was on Martin Luther and English Reformation. It's very famous, of course, that Luther writes his screeds against the Jews in the 1540s. And one of the points I make when I teach on Martin Luther is, you know, I'm uncomfortable calling him anti-Semitic because the language of anti-Semitism is rooted in a, a cod scientific, cod biological notion of race to which Luther would have had no access in yeah. the 16th century. It, it, it's, primarily, it's primarily a religious, religious category for him when you talk about Jews. So uh, critical race theory, it certainly embodies some important truths. It also points to the fact that, that certain systems and practices can be set up in a way that perpetuates mm-hmm. racism. You know, for, you know, the most extreme example, I suppose, would be slavery, the whole system of slavery. It's mm-hmm. a system uh, right. that certainly in its, in its uh, European-American form was predicated on the constructed notion of race right. uh, in order to justify and maintain itself. So critical race theory uh, has, has certain elements of, of, of truth, as, as most theories do. Where it falls down, I think, is that it tends to to predicate the ability to discern what is and is not racist Mm. on an almost kind of Gnostic kind of knowledge. Uh, You know, one example is, we've heard it said a number of times, you know, don't ask whether you're a racist. Ask in what way you are racist. Now, notice what would be going on in that sentence there. The assumption is, hey, every, everybody's a racist. Mm-hmm. The question is, we have to discern in which ways we are. Well, that's, that's problematic. Uh, again, an extreme example might be Ibram Kendi's extremely unpleasant tweet about Amy Coney Barrett when uh, it emerged that she had adopted uh, a couple of children of color. Uh, most of us, you know, our intuitive reaction would be, that's great. That shows she's not a racist. Uh, it, but using that sort of that kind of Nietzschean kind of twist for Kendi, oh, no, no, that's a paternalist act that shows a, a colonial mentality, uh, the desire to keep uh, black people in a subordinate position. And that's, that's how, in its most extreme uh, and explicit form, critical race theory will work. Race is not my issue. You know, I've just written a book on LGBTQ identity and stuff like that. My concern in that article, and, and I, I took a Nazarite vow many years ago never to write on race, but I've lost all my hair, so the vow doesn't apply anymore. I remember uh, you telling me that numerous yeah, times. Yeah, it's, you know, you, it's a quick way to people hating you, and I certainly discovered that last week. Though I, I don't think that any more people hate me now than hated me yeah, before. It, sure, they've just exactly. been reaffirmed in their <laughs> hatred of me, if right, I exactly. that way. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the thing that worries me is that while Protestants and specifically evangelicals are wrestling with the race issue, there are signs that they're tending to do it along the tracks laid down by critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And my big concern is that what's happening there is that hermeneutical strategies and philosophical strategies are being adopted, which five, 10, 15 years from now will mean that it is virtually impossible to mount a case against the legitimation of at least elements, if not the whole litany of LGBTQ identities, right. which are also 
construct it and mm-hmm. also uh, build upon a narrative of powerful powerlessness, victim, victimizer. So, and, you know, we, we know, I think, um, I, I, I don't think I'm misspeaking here. I think both Ligon Duncan and Mark Dever, men that, that, I, that I respect, have, have, yeah. have argued that unless the church deals with race, uh, it won't be able to persuade its young people on the LGBTQ front, right. which is, is certainly a laudable aim. Yeah. The problem is, okay, if that's the case, you've got to make sure you deal with race in a way that, that makes it very clear it is completely different to the LGBTQ issue. Right. which is not a clarity that one sees mm-hmm. in a lot of the evangelical rhetoric and writing about race, and yeah. certainly one that is denied, uh, a distinction that is denied in the wider world of, of critical race theory, where intersectionality and the notion of you know, black trans lives matter has become a, a significant factor in discussions. Right, and that's part of my concern and, and why I think that the um, kind of well-crafted or carefully crafted attempt to kind of triangulate issues here. Well, let's, let's grant these issues on critical race theory, or, or, or at minimum, let's not say anything against critical race theory, lest we lose a generation of young people to the LGBTQ lobby because they think we're racist. But the problem with that approach, as you say, is that intersectionality at this point is unavoidable. Uh, Critical race theory cannot be teased out from the inevitable intersectional uh, implications of the thing. And that's why, you know, you mentioned the black trans lives issue. You you can't tease the T out from LGBTQ. You can't tease the LGBTQ out of critical race theory if you take it as a whole, because it really is a worldview. And this is where I want to ask you about this. As we, as we look at the term critical race theory, you know, that, that T theory can be capitalized in some ways if you go back um, close to 100 years or so, because what we're talking about in critical theory, the broader uh, category of critical theory, historically speaking, is very innovative, very new. It's, it's rooted in um, students of Marxism who, who saw Marx's project as far more than just a, an economic system. Because Marx understood his project is far more than just an economic system. It really kind of an all-encompassing worldview. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, well, well, you know, at that point, you get into debates about Marxism that are, that are sure. beyond the scope of this. But certainly, the Marx of what we call the early manuscripts, 1844, is a Marx offering a philosophical account of the world that is, is far more than, than just economic. And, and critical theory, in terms of its genealogical origins, really originates with a, a group of German thinkers who they've read Hegel, and they interacting with these early manuscripts of Marx. They were only republished, I think, in the in the 1930s, discovered and republished. They were not published yeah. in Marx's lifetime. That really uh, allow for an account of of society, culture, and alienation that is is deeply philosophical, and as you say, is is a sort of all embracing worldview. I mean, one of the pushbacks I got on my article uh, was, you know, Truman tries to link. Jamar, Tisby and company to the Frankfurt School, the, the early critical theory as well. A couple of things to say about that. One, I think uh, anybody who thinks there's no connection between the broader tradition of critical race theory and the Frankfurt School simply doesn't know their philosophical yeah. history. Uh, it's very clear. Right. I mean, and you can go to someone like Angela Davis, huge fan mm. and, a, and a, a, a noted scholar of the thought of Herbert Marcuse, 
founding member of the Frankfurt School. So there is a connection. Secondly, you don't have to have read or studied a particular group right. for their ideas to, to percolate into your thinking. One of the things I say to the students today is, when you look at the discipline of modern history as pursued in the university, very few of us historians would say we're Marxists. Why, why would we not say we're Marxists? Right. Well, many of the ideas of Marxist history have just become mainstream. You know, economics is important, mm -hmm. for example. You no longer have to be a Marxist to believe that economics is very important. It is. It was one of the truths of Marxism, if you like, that, that came through. And I think what we see with critical race theory, certainly in, its, in evangelical form, is, okay, I'll, I'll concede the point that maybe these people are not deeply read in the, in the history of critical theory. Uh, one, that doesn't mean they're not using ideas from critical theory. And two, it actually makes me more worried about them. Because I, I think yeah. from one perspective, the, the history of any idea is very important, not to engage in some sort of genetic fallacy. You know, Marx said this in 1844, right. therefore it must be wrong to say it today. That's, that would be naive. Right. But one thing the history of ideas does is it teaches you about their implications, intentions, ramifications, applications, in a way that I think is very helpful for knowing where things might go. Not a determinist on that front, but wow, if these ideas have this pedigree and they've always tilted in this particular direction, then it's reasonable to ask, well, if you're using these ideas today, how are you going to make sure that they don't tilt in that direction? And I quote from, in the article from uh, Decree of 1966 uh, that sort of triggered the Cultural Revolution in China. And my point in doing that was not yeah. to say, you know, these guys are, want to instigate a cultural revolution in North America. It's more to the point of saying, this has been said before, and it had really bad consequences. Right. <laughs> what it didn't what go well. safety measures are you putting in? What, what critical barriers are you applying to critical theory in order to make sure that its implications uh, don't run amok in society? Right. Yeah. And this is where, as a churchman, I'm, I'm very concerned. I mean, in your article, you mention the inroads that critical race theory has made in the Southern Baptist Convention. This isn't just a, um, a theory on your part. It's very clear. I mean, it's been, it's been a, a point of real divide in the Southern Baptist Convention. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the measure that came out just a couple of years ago at their annual meeting which uh, began as an overture to condemn critical race theory. It was taken back into committee and came out in the form of, they, they tinkered with it a little bit, and it came out in the form of, hey, critical race theory can be a really helpful tool to help us interpret the Bible. And, and it's just been going downhill since then in terms of how, how divisive this is in the denomination. Now, helpfully, um, Al Mohler has, has come out and been very clear on the problems of critical race theory, which is interesting because it seems to put him at odds with a couple of very good friends of his that he that you mentioned earlier, who are conspicuous in their silence on this matter. You know, Ligon Duncan and, and and Mark Dever, you know, good men who we respect, but but seem to be strategically very silent on that matter, which I don't think is going to be very helpful at a time when the church needs real clarity on this issue. I can say that as a pastor in the PCA, this issue is yeah. being uh, very divisive in the PCA right now. Right now, we have very prominent and influential teaching elders, pastors in our denomination, um, who for a couple of years now, at least, have been heavily promoting um, liberation theology of all things. Liberation theology, I think, can be probably described as the as a religious, you know, cousin or a religious nephew of 
critical race theory. Um, they've been promoting liberation theory, black liberation uh, theology, and uh, quoting James Cone and, you know, encouraging people to read James Cone, who's described as the father of black liberation theology. They've been telling people to read his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I can tell you firsthand, The Cross and the Lynching Tree is filled with rank heresy, not just errors, but we, what we would identify as, and what the history of the church would identify as rank heresies. So how is it, how have we gotten to this er this point where, where pastors in evangelical, you know, quote, conservative denominations are now actively promoting uh, these things? And so that's a concern for the church because critical race theory is not just a tool to help something. It really is. And, and I don't think it'll ever be happy functioning as just something to kind of look at to see if it has something helpful to tell us. It's, it's, it is a worldview. It's an all-encompassing sort of thing, uh, is it not? And, and, and I don't know how you appeal to it as just something over here on the side yeah. that might have something helpful every once in a while. Yeah, and I think this is the problem. You have to develop a way of addressing race in the church yes. that takes the problem seriously. I mean, let's face it, nobody's denying this is a, yes. you know, a, a scar on the American landscape and that the, it continues to haunt Christianity in general and evangelicalism in particular at the moment. Right. The Trump era did nothing to help heal any of those wounds. So w w nobody's denying it's an issue. The question becomes, how do you address it? And I think one of the ways, the obvious way to address it, of course, is to have a robust understanding of of human beings as sharing a common human nature. Your problem there is that critical theorists will come around and say, yeah, but your concept of human nature, it's a, it's a, it's a construct put together by the powerful in order to protect their interests. That's the Marxist move or the Nietzschean move. You know, people say it's cultural Marxism. You could also make a case for saying there's a whole, there's a whole lot of Nietzsche going on mm. here as well. Um, and, and then I think when we come to the leaders, you know, some of whom we mentioned in this podcast, we could say, you know, we certainly feel the apologetic pinch, yeah. uh, but you know, the mission field and Chad Vegas, I don't remember saying this, but Chad Vegas, he's always quoting this back of me. He said, you once said the mission field has been the source of all the great heresies in the modern <laughs> church. And, yeah. and of course what happens on the mission field is you're looking for evangelistic apologetic strategies. Right. Well, now the mission fields everywhere, you know, we, we're mm -hmm. living in a post-Christian world. The mission field is not out there. It's, your next door neighbor. It's, so our, it's, it's our kids square. as we're sending them off yeah. to college. And, and, and I was struck very much. I shared this with you at the weekend, Todd, by a statement from the, uh, he's actually a, 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 an Eastern Orthodox priest, Patrick Henry Reardon, mm -hmm. reading his little book on the atonement. Uh, one of the things I love about the Eastern Orthodox is relevance is utterly irrelevant to them. They're, they're not interested <laughs> right. in being relevant right. in any way, shape or form. Yeah. He, he, he said this, and, and it really struck me. He said, uh, I am not sure that I can name a single heresy in Christian history that did not have some apologetic concern near right. its root. Right. Let me read that again. I am not sure that I can name a single heresy in Christian history that did not have some apologetic concern near its root. Mm. You know, what he's saying there is, you, know, you look back through the history of the church, and I'm not, and I, you know, I'm not as learned as him. I'd have to really think that through to make sure every heresy conforms to that. But he's essentially saying, by and large, most heresies have at their root some legitimate evangelistic concern. Let's, we have to remove the barriers yeah. to belief, and so we therefore have to we make need the to faith. Yeah, exactly. So we have to. Uh, we have to soft pedal this doctrine, yeah. or maybe do away with it, or rethink it. I, I remember when Revoice was kind of the hot topic in uh, 
the PCA, and it's still, you know, it still is a hot topic. Um, but I remember corresponding with through email with several um, progressive pastors in the PCA and very cordial um, uh, correspondence with them. But to a man, um, they said, I'm personally uncomfortable with a lot of the language yeah. that Revoice uses, but we need it. And they, they went on because of missional grounds. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is helping us reach people. Yes, I don't like this language. Yes, I don't like this category they use, but it'll help us reach people. Yeah. And, and that's that. And, and we're hearing now the same thing in defense of, well, I'm not going to take on critical race theory because yeah. that might keep us from reaching someone. Which is a tragedy because there are other ways of addressing this. Right. Uh, on the day we're recording this podcast, I just posted a review of Jerry McDermott's Race and Covenant book over at First Things. Now, I don't agree with everything in that book. I've talked to Jerry behind the scenes. The, the National Covenant idea is one that I, I'm open to persuasion on, I suppose, but my, my instincts are no, you know, I, I, I don't want to go there. But everything in that book is worth discussing. Uh, and, you know, it's a balanced book. There's a, a, a wonderful essay on the life and career of Martin Luther King that doesn't make him out to be, a, you know, uh, an untouchable saint. But on the other hand, also makes it very clear this guy made tremendous contributions to civil rights in this country, more perhaps more than anybody else. It's, it's a book that I think eschews the sort of uh, linguistic histrionics uh, <laughs> Some people do let that. the listener understand know. the linguistic histrionics <laughs> of the debate as it's currently constructed and really does try to find a way forward. And again, I want to say, uh, my interest in this is not to say, hey, there's no racism. My interest in this is to say, okay, show me how you're going to address the race issue without fatally conceding ground to the other issues of this day. It's ironic that, that some of the guys who are most silent in the face of critical race theory were some of the most belligerently outspoken on the issue of women's ordination. And yes. uh, the notion there yes. was, you know, we can't allow women's ordination because it opens up a hermeneutic for the legitimation of right. homosexuality. Yes. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. Yep. But come on, you've got to be consistent. Yep. Uh, and I would say exactly. to you, maybe young people aren't persuaded by Christianity today as much because of its attitude to women's ordination as race. You can right. make a very good case yeah. for saying, you know, women's ordination, it holds people back. You go to Boston, I wonder yeah. on the streets of Boston or, you know, on the streets of a town in Vermont, yeah. how many people are going to be very sympathetic to the idea of male-only ministry? Um, exactly. Or one could even go for that, say predestination, you know. <laughs> I, I wonder how many young people at first hearing find the idea of predestination uh, an inoffensive idea in Christianity. That's right. It's really appealing. That's what drew me yeah. to Christianity yeah. as, as soon as I heard somebody talk about election. Yeah. Well, and, and this, this thought occurs to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. This, this thought occurs to me as well is um, uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the religious um, implications here. Um, in, 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 in critical race theory, you have a demand to accept a, a whole dogma, and, and there is a heresy denying that dogma. Um, there is penance. There's all kinds of things now you need to do. There, there, there's not repentance. There's penance. But there is no re redemption. And, you know, when you, when you read Kendi, when you read D'Angelo's work, 
This is very clear that, that the life of the white person needs to be at this point a life of kind of permanent penance. This is where it undermines the gospel. And I've said this before, as much as I hate the theology of revoice, critical race theory, in my opinion, represents a far deeper existential threat to the gospel than does revoice. You can have revoice and um, um, uh, uh, substitutionary atonement exist at the same time. But critical race theory ultimately has to move you away from some of these substantive foundational doctrines. You won't find a liberation theologian worth his salt that believes in substitutionary atonement. It's got to go. Because why? It's oppression. It's, a, it, it's an unjust form of oppression. And that's why it has to go. And before you wrap us up, Carl, just one more anecdote. A very well-known teaching elder in the PCA um, who... Uh, uh, does a lot of work on this and considers now his ministry. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. He he has said this in a recent podcast. His ministry is now um, reparations. And he has said through his kind of transformation on this issue of race, he has now come to the point where he discards the the narrative of uh, the, the, the story of redemption being one of creation, fall, um, uh, redemption and consummation. He says now he, he's had to discard that and has to rethink his entire thoughts on, well, not his, the church's thoughts on, on the story of, of redemptive history. And it all goes back to the fact that he has embraced critical race theory. It has become his new worldview to the extent where he's now jettisoning um, what, what we accept as kind of the broad categories of redemptive history. And this is a teaching elder in the PCA. So there you have it. It's a religion. Yeah. And as I wrap up here, I would say, you know, one thing, you know, reparations is interesting. And, and I'd say, I, I'm not convinced by the reparations mm-hmm. argument, but I think it's certainly something that could be debated. Mm-hmm. I'm open to persuasion yeah. on it. What I would say is it, it can't possibly be anything like an adequate answer in itself, right. because the issue of racial reconciliation is ultimately a community, social, interpersonal right. one. And purely judicial categories can't deal mm. with that. They cannot deal with that. You look at South Africa, you look at Northern Ireland. Ultimately, those places have started to be put back together because painful acts of forgiveness, sacrificial acts of forgiveness by the victims, by the victims have had to be uh, enacted. Yeah. And, you know, you cannot deal, I don't think you can ultimately deal with this problem simply by using the notion of justice. Mercy and Mm -hmm. grace have to be a key part of any Christian solution to the problem. And this is why critical race theory, in my mind, represents an existential threat to the gospel and why it needs to be confronted. So... Well, there you have it. And that was Todd Pruitt saying that last bit, by the way. <laughs> Angry emails to him, not to me. Please send them on. Thank you for joining us today on Mortification of Spin. It was great to have you with you. I'm absolutely sure that everybody from all sides will now have seen the light and be totally in agreement and the problem will just go away. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. If you feel led to leave an angry uh, email or note, please don't. Uh, If you feel led to make a donation, please do. And Todd and I have discussed the music we're going to close out this episode with, and so I want to introduce you now to Backman Turner Overdrive and 
taking care of business. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Try it, you try it. I'm not gonna try it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah. He won't need it. He hates everything. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.